Welcome to a special edition of Museum Chat Live. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. We are thrilled to bring our hit virtual museum lecture series to the podcast. Now, with over 30 lectures on YouTube, we're so happy to bring the lecture audio to the podcast format so that more of you can enjoy these fascinating stories and join in on the historical adventures. Coming up this winter, we'll release the audio for lectures on topics such as the history of the largest cemetery here in Niagara, Ontario's racially segregated schools, the Third Welland Canal, and much more. More lectures are headed your way this winter over on YouTube. You can join in live or catch the lectures afterwards on our playlist. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find us at St. Catherine's Museum so you don't miss any of the fun. For more information on the lecture series, the impressive guest list coming up this winter, and the lecture topics, please visit stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, our podcasts, and our programs, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Today's lecture features special guest Dr. Adam Montgomery, one of the most recognized historians on cemetery history today. Dr. Montgomery shares the history of Victoria Lawn Cemetery in a lecture titled Stones and Symbols of Victoria Lawn Cemetery. This lecture was originally presented on September 16, 2020. Enjoy the lecture. Thanks, Adrian. So first off, um, hello everyone. My name's Adam, as I'm sure you guessed. Thanks Adrian and the St. Catharines Museum for asking me to do this presentation. I'm always excited when I get asked to do these. Um, those who follow my activity on social media and elsewhere will know that I love walking old cemeteries and I love promoting them at every opportunity. So I'm always, um, always feel blessed and thankful when I'm asked to give these talks, particularly in Niagara, which is my home region. So. So tonight's presentation, um, so it, it's always a little difficult when I'm asked to give these things, particularly when um, we're talking about a cemetery as big as Victoria Lawn, which I'll get into in a, in a second. But the, the biggest question is always, well, what does the audience expect for something like this? And also, how do you tackle a cemetery, covering a cemetery as big as Victoria Lawn, where you have so many people buried, so much history, et cetera? So, what I chose to do for this one is um, I will be talking about stones and symbols along the way, but what I chose to do was actually I sort of go back in my mind to the first time that I visited. And um, what I tried to do was sort of walk it with a beginner's eyes a little bit and um, think about what are some of the stones that stand out the first time you're walking through? What are some of the sort of features of it? And so I thought that way um, for those in St. Catharines or Niagara who haven't actually visited, um, they'll they'll have a sense. And if they have visited, they'll sort of be able to pick out landmarks, but also for those not in Niagara that are joining us, that they'll be able to actually sort of see some of the prominent things or some of the noticeable things when you first walk it. So 
that's sort of the that was sort of my rationale and i'm always happy for feedback after about um you know about what content you you found the most intriguing what you didn't etc cetera, etc cetera. so um and i'll give you all of my various activities at the end so you can contact me or follow my my various activities on social media website etc so so let's get started so just to start some quick basic facts about Victoria Lawn. So it was established in 1856 in St. Catharines, very close to the Welland Canal. Um, originally it was called the St. Catharines Cemetery, but was renamed in honor of Queen Victoria at the turn of the century, 20th century that is. It was designed by a man named William Mundy, who was a landscape gardener. He arrived around 1850 from Scotland and lived in Hamilton. Um, he was in what's, what was then called Canada West for only about eight years and he died early at 47. I haven't actually, none of the sources I've seen so far actually state how, um, but you can sort of take your pick unfortunately in those days. Uh, but he was responsible for a few big projects in Toronto. One of them was the, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but the normal school, I think it was called, um, doing some of the garden things there, some of the projects there. And in, in this neck of the woods, of course, Victoria Lawn. So Victoria Lawn is one of Canada's, what a term that's often, used, these terms are often used interchangeably, a rural cemetery or a garden cemetery. So just gonna go through my notes here and explain a little bit. I won't get into the whole background. There's lots of literature on this. If you even just Google garden cemeteries, you'll see a whole bunch of literature come up from all over North America and Europe to explain more and there are even entire books written on it. But just a little background. So at the end of the 18th century in Europe, um, with the growth of industrialization and cities themselves, many urban burial grounds became overcrowded, particularly churchyards. And in the minds of contemporaries, they were seen as bad for health amongst other things. There was something called the miasma theory, which basically, um, I won't get into that, but it had to do with what they called vapors that were seen as harmful. So people actually believed that some of these churchyards that got so filled up where people literally could smell in some cases, um, sorry to be, you know, sort of explicit, but rotting corpses or smells. Um, they thought that these things could actually be damaging to your health, even just by inhaling them. Um, so, so over time, this led to sort of reform movements about, you know, how to fix this problem. So in the 19th century, they came up with the idea to create these sort of large landscape cemeteries that could be used not just for interment and, and for visiting of the deceased by relatives, but also as places of public recreation. So, um, and in fact, before public parks, before large public parks, were, were even established. Cemeteries like Victoria Lawn were some of the most popular places to visit. Um, pub the public visited it often, especially on Sundays, other times. Um, they were on the tourists, the tourists flocked to them when they came. They were featured on postcards, stereographs, all kinds of things. So they were sort of a fashionable place for the middle class to visit and to sort of take like a, a leisure stroll, if you will. So they had this really interesting um, sort of role in society and, and in places like there's a, a famous cemetery in Brooklyn called Greenwood and, and Greenwood is actually seen as the first large public, Brooklyn's first large public park. So, so they had this interesting role that um, is hard for us to imagine today when we have lots of public parks and um, cemeteries for a lot of people are seen as places that are morbid or depressing or places to avoid. Instead, these were seen as places uh, like there was a 
there was definitely a sense that the main purpose was mourning and visiting deceased loved ones. But at the same time, um, Victorian culture, specifically the middle class culture of the Victorian era, really flocked to these places as places of, of leisure. So, and you can see this at Victoria Lawn and some of the landscaping that's the remnants of old, of old um, aspects of the grounds, like where the fountain used to be and things like that. So these were places that were beautiful. People enjoyed visiting them and particularly for people of, of lesser means, um, they were ways to see what was considered great art. And so really places that um, were frequented a lot. So going back to Victoria Lawn itself, we have over 79,000 people interred and about 30,000, over 30,000 monuments. So it is quite literally a city of the dead. <clears throat> Covers 170 acres of land. And, uh, you know, I've kind of put there half jokingly, but not really jokingly, that a great place for a stroll. So if you're somebody, whether you're somebody like me who likes to go for the history and the stories and the stones, even if you're just looking for a place to go, often less crowded than public parks, there are lots of meandering pathways and places to go there that you can sort of get some solitude and sort of take, take in a lot of different things. So just quickly here, I wanted to show you, uh, I won't read the whole thing because it's a lot of minutia, but this is um, from the actual administration office at Victoria Lawn Cemetery inside. They have an original advertisement from when it was still called St. Catherine's Cemetery. So I just thought you might wanna have a look at that briefly. So before I get into the sort of um, what I would call first eyes walking through the cemetery tour, just several interesting people. These are the sort of folks that always get brought up um, by locals. When you say, I'm going to Victoria Lawn, people will ask you, have you seen X? And these are the people. So we have William Hamilton Merritt, who was a War of 1812 veteran, a merchant, and a big promoter of the Welland Canal. Um, he wasn't always the most successful businessman, and some of his ideas um, proved to be overly ambitious, but he's a major figure in the history and certainly responsible for a lot of the industrial development of the area, <clears throat> also a big landowner as well. Um, then you have the Reverend Anthony Burns, who's a Baptist preacher and freedom seeker from Virginia, and his, his case attracted a lot of attention when he sought freedom from his enslaver in 1853. He was then imprisoned in Boston, returned to Virginia, and then eventually ransomed. So he became a minister in St. Catharines, and I think it was 1860, um, 1861, and then died at just 28, sadly, from tuberculosis in 1862. So his, his grave is there and um, actually finally located it thanks to Rochelle Bush. So Rochelle, if you're out there, thanks again for helping me find it. And then the last person on this sort of short list was Gwendolyn Mullock, who was the first practicing female doctor in St. Catharines. And in addition to other things, she served as the medical consultant for the Toronto Children's Aid Society. So this is a very, very short list. And when you go there, you, you can imagine why when you see how many people are there and all kinds of movers and shakers from all walks of life buried there. So now we're going to get started on the sort of first eyes tour, I'll call it. So one of the, perhaps the most noticeable thing, and um, you saw it in my intro screen, is the Devella Mills Carolyn Tower. 
It's a beautiful piece of architecture. And so just a little bit about it. It was erected in 1949 and it commemorates David Mills and his wife, Ella. So David was a native of St. Catharines and um, he emigrated to the United States and he worked for a company called the Fellows Medical Manufacturing Company. He actually later developed a spark plug and um, by both skill and luck, it was put into all Buick automobiles and he invested in the company and made a lot of money. So, um, but it, despite being quite wealthy, he was also known as a philanthropist, donated a lot of money to various causes. Um, and they established the, the Devella Mills Foundation in 1935. So he died in 1944 and he had donated a lot of money to hospitals, churches, schools, the YMCA, YWCA, and several other organizations. Um, so before its liquidation in 1955, the foundation had donated 10 and a half million to various causes in both America, um, overseas, and, and then in, at the, actually at the St. Catharines General Hospital, um, over $300,000 and a wing of the hospital was named after them. So um, this, this is a beautiful tower and you, you can see it, it's in the, what's called the new section, um, but you can see it from both sides. Usually if you're close to the Queenston, if you're close to Queenston, the street, because it's so tall and what's so beautiful about it is it has all of these bells inside. I think it's 80 something bells inside little mini miniature bells and it plays music on the hour. So it's, uh, it's quite a, a beautiful thing, not just to look at, but when you're walking through the cemetery, you can hear it on both sides of the cemetery when you're walking. So it, it reminds you of the time. And um, if you're somebody like me and you hear a song four or five times, you realize you've spent too much time in the cemetery and you should go eat or do something else. Um, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece of architecture. And um, if you're interested in it, you can Google the name and um, it's actually considered one of um, Canada's national uh, recognized sites. I can't remember the term for it, but there, there's a whole website on it. Part of where I got the information comes from there. So, so that's that. Um, another monument I wanted to show you is for the Taylor family. It's, it's this beautiful Celtic cross. Um, I know the picture on the left is a bit far away for you to see the details, but it's hard to, it actually, um, if I can sh show you, I don't know if, yeah, you can see my mouse cursor there, but it's right next to a tree that's often growing right in front of it. So to get a picture of the whole thing, you have to stand back and on a strange angle. So it's really hard to get it up close and have the whole thing in the frame, but um, beautiful Celtic cross with the usual sort of very intricate patterns and things like that. But why this one's particularly interesting is, is at the base of the cross here, you have an angel. So I'm gonna give you a close up here now so you can see closer up. So this is an example. Um, I, this was one of the ones I remember noticing the first time I walked through because I came in, there's a, a sort of back side entrance, I guess you can call it over here. And you come up a road and you come right around to this curve and it's sort of right here. So you, you notice it um, quite quickly when you come in. And um, it's a great example of the way that symbols in these cemeteries, old cemeteries, um, spoke or speak to you through the sort of iconography that they use. So in this case, you actually have here two passion flowers here, stylized passion flowers. And then here you have this angel. So the passion flowers are often interpreted as symbolizing the passion of Christ for various reasons. Um, the five stamen or the five wounds of Christ. And then there are other symbolisms that various scholars and, and um, theologians have come up with over time. But 
often associated with the passion of Christ and Jesus. So you have that symbolism there. And here you have this beautiful angel. Um, now, what he's actually holding or what it's holding is, is a trumpet or a horn. And so oftentimes this is interpreted as the Archangel Gabriel um, because of the connection to the Annunciation when Mary was told that she would bear the, the Savior. Um, but it's hard to actually tell because sometimes the features can be sort of generic angel, I guess you'd call it. So in a lot of cases, people will just call it a resurrection angel. But the, the symbolism here where it's sitting at the base of the cross and, you know, all of the various holding the horn and the various other symbolisms, it's basically conveying the message that the, the deceased are waiting for the call to resurrection. That's what the, the trumpet slash horn symbolizes is the the second coming and the calling to the resurrection. So this idea that the deceased is wait is waiting and then the call will come and they will rise to heaven. So if you ever see that, you see one of these angels with a horn, that's the symbolism. And in this case, it's just beautiful, beautiful art even to look at. So quite an enjoyable one. Um, the next one nearby is uh, very noticeable again because of the sort of unique nature of it. So this is for a man named Sir Frederick William Benson. Um, I won't get into all of Benson's biography, but um, he was a longtime military member and he, he served in various theaters. Um, but in Canada, the, the Fenian raids of 1866, when the Irish Republican Brotherhood tried to, um, basically they were attacking British army forts and customs posts and other things in Canada. So he was one of the people that, that fought in the Fenian raids on the Canadian side. Or the British side. Um, but what's interesting about his monument beyond that is, is the fact that you can actually see, and I'll give you a close up here, you can actually see an officer's sword draped right over the top of it. So this is um, in, a, in Canadian cemeteries quite rare. Um, I can only think of one other example that I've seen. Uh, I know there are more, but um, in terms of my own wanderings, they're, they're quite rare. So it, it's just a sort of neat example of um, uh, where a profession or pride in profession is stated right on the monument. And obviously the symbolism of being draped over the cross, I don't think requires an explanation. The next stone, which is also again close by, th these are called, termed as sort of what they call recumbent crosses. So um, what when you see something like this, first of all, I always feel it's important to point out because there is confusion. And I remember a long time ago, first walking these cemeteries that I was confused as well. You look at it and you think somebody's in there, um, but they're actually not. Um, the people are usually, it's the monument itself is, is the monument and the people are usually buried sort of in the standard spots, either beside it or, or at the one of the heads. So in this case, likely by sort of the I'm going to just point to it here, somewhere around here, probably. It's hard to say because this is quite a full family plot. Um, but, but essentially, it, it's meant to convey um, what was part of the medieval revival of the 19th century. So you could see this in things like Gothic architecture and, and tombstones. And so this one's interesting because it's actually in granite, whereas most, which started around the 1880s in Canada. So this is um, somewhat unique in that it is made of the, what was the sort of newer fashionable stone versus white marble or sandstone or something else that was fashionable earlier. Um, but you'll see various examples like this in different cemeteries. St. Mark's in Niagara-on-the-Lake has quite a few 
of different kinds, but also recumbent like this. So they're just very interesting to look at because they stand out often compared to the, the upright stones that are, you know, sort of the standard style, uh, or at least standard position, I should say. So, but again, what's sort of interesting when you learn, it's always interesting, or at least it was to me when you learn that there's not actually somebody in there because it sort of looks like there might be, but there isn't. Now the next stone here, um, for anybody out there who may have attended my talk last fall, this is a repeat, I apologize, but it's one that I always feel is worth highlighting because it is unique and it is one that's noticeable when you come into the old section of the cemetery sort of almost immediately. This one is sort of just when you come in the, the old section through the front, through the gates of the old section, the main gates where the superintendent, old superintendent's house is. Um, and you just sort of turn just to the right and you see it sort of sort of standing out there very prominently. So um, this is a monument for a woman named Anna O'Neill McKeague and her young son, Joseph. And as you can see by the ages, they were both quite young. So just the basic story behind it is that both of them died of tuberculosis, excuse me, within three months of each other in 1897. And so... Uh, quite a sad story, um, as as was often the case then, and especially with diseases like tuberculosis that killed so many people. Um, but in this case, um, she died in February and he died in April. So very, very short. You can imagine the traumatic loss for the husband slash father. <clears throat> and so what makes this monument unique is that oftentimes you see a representation of faith and mourning um, in, in old cemeteries like this, where you'll have, a, it's, a, it's a woman usually in classical garb and leaning on a cross like this. But in this case, what makes it unique is that it's actually thought to be a representation of Anna herself. And she's holding a rose here. And um, as you can see, she's in contemporary dress, which is also kind of neat to see, sad but neat to see, because you just don't see that often in these places. Um, the rose she's holding, roses, um, as they do today, symbolize love, but they, they have many symbolisms in cemeteries as they do elsewhere. But often in cemeteries, particularly on the gravestones of young children, you'll often see the, the rose that's wilted or, or you know, wilted in the sense of turned downwards or wilted in the sense of petals have fallen off of it to symbolize that a child has died young. So in this case, um, it could be interpreted as love, but also likely the fact that um, her life was short as well, roses often. And then you can see this in old poetry and literature stretching back to the Middle Ages. Um, and, and this goes back way, way back even further to biblical tradition and elsewhere of the idea that the human lifespan is short and, and in many ways resembles a flower or something, uh, the famous one from the Bible about our days are like grass, meaning that, that we come and we go and our, the wind comes and picks us up and we're forgotten. So it's sort of a sad um, sort of symbolism of, of the short human lifespan in, in um, relation to the sort of grand length of time. So but it's quite a beautiful monument, regardless of the poignancy of it. And you can see this was actually from a different time, as you can see by the blue sky versus the gray sky. Um, but this was a different day. Fortunately, Anna tends to be quite dirty because she's tall. She's tall and it's hard for people to get up there and clean it. 
Um, but uh, it's still quite a beautiful monument either way and one that I always take a minute to stop and appreciate every time I'm there. The next one, um, those who follow me on social media will recognize this because I posted this one just the other day. Um, it's, it's an example. I wanted to show this one because I, I noticed it um, for the first time and, and what was fascinating about it to me was the epitaph. So it's hard to read probably on your screen, but this is for uh, a young man named Herbert Ride. He died at just 30. So Herbert was a jeweler. He was born in Guelph. He was a jeweler um, in civilian life and then eventually entered the military and another victim of tuberculosis. He died at just 30 and um, it was contracted while he was in service and his death record from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission states that it was, it says, quote, um, contracted or, or due to service, death due to service. So, but what interested me about this one beyond the sort of, you know, poignancy of the story and his young age was this epitaph that, that says, it is not all of life to live nor all of death to die. And this is actually, I, I had to Google this one and sort of look around because I wasn't, I've, I see a lot of these, I've seen thousands. And after a while you get to spot, you can attribute it almost right away to, you know, usually to Judeo-Christian traditions or things like that. But this one was interesting because it's sort of a new age, this quote unquote new age um, epitaph that's attributed to the American clairvoyant Edgar Casey. And um, for anybody not familiar with Edgar Casey's work, he sort of, as a lot of clairvoyants tend to be controversial figure um, but you can you can play around on the internet and find quite a bit about him he was I remember a long time ago he had a, an episode on unsolved mysteries the old unsolved mysteries about him so an, an interesting fellow and um, I just thought it was very fascinating to see and it's a good example I often um, epitaphs to me at least from my experience talking with people that also like to go through old cemeteries they tend to be one of the most ignored um, one of the most ignored aspects of old gravestones, because I think in a lot of cases, because they're hard to read, particularly on the 19th century stones that have eroded somewhat, but it's actually qu quite rewarding and you learn quite a bit from reading them um, just because although there are sort of common ones that come from traditions and, and there were actually lots of different epitaph books that were just for the sort of, um, for the, uh, I don't know what the term is, for the uh, one-stop shopper or for the person that couldn't be bothered to try and come up with something or didn't know what was appropriate, um, there were epitaph books that you, that you could just select ones from, and there were actually famous ones. Um, but but uh, aside from that, there are actually quite a few times you come across epitaphs that are unique or or some or somewhat rare and and it oftentimes can lead you down down sort of these research rabbit holes that can be quite fun and you'll learn quite a bit you you might learn in some cases you'll find out about an author you didn't know about um, one that comes up fairly well not fairly often but um, more common in the US but I've seen it in Canada two or three times is one that's attributed to um, poet uh, Richardson and uh, famous people attributed to Mark Twain. They actually think he wrote it, but it wasn't written by him. But it says, um, you know, green sod above, lie light, lie light. Good night, dear heart. Good night, good night. I'm just giving you part of it. But the first time I saw that, it just I thought it was such a beautiful verse, and I wanted to know the the origin of it. And then it took me down this whole rabbit hole of who wrote it. People think it's Mark Twain, but it's not Mark Twain. It was actually an Australian poet. Then I was reading about him, et cetera, et cetera. So you can actually have quite a bit of interesting 
uh, sort of fun just from doing something like looking at an epitaph and trying to find out the origins of it. And even though it can be hard to read them sometimes, I encourage you to, to give it a shot, bring a magnifying glass or just sort of sit there. O oftentimes these days with how good the camera lenses are, um, I, there are lots of times where I actually can't read it with the human eye, but then I take a picture of it and bring it home and zoom in and I can immediately figure it out. So you can use technology um, to sort of help you to figure that out in some cases if you can't. Anyway, here I go rambling about epitaphs. Next stone. Um, this is one for Henry Robinson, a young boy who died in 1852. It's quite eroded. I had a hard time even figuring out the age, which is why I don't have any details. I don't like to often guess if I'm not sure. Um, but why I wanted to show it to you is it's uh, another example of some of the common symbolisms you'll see and you see it, you see this quite a bit at Victoria Lawn. So um, it probably for most of you goes without saying, you're probably quite aware of how young a lot of, how so, so many children died young in those days um, of various things, any number of things. So you see quite a few, sadly, quite a few tombstones for children. And oftentimes you can tell by the size. In this case, it's actually an example where it's a little more difficult to tell immediately because this stone is a bigger stone than the others. But oftentimes when you see, see stones like this one or stones like this one in the background or stones like those, they tend to be um, footstone or sorry, they tend to be either footstones or stones for children. And, and especially if it's got the symbolisms and things, the footstones tended to have just the initials or initials and date, whereas, when you see something like this, you can almost immediately identify it as a stone for a child. They would often take the same symbols and things for adults and just miniaturize them for children. So you'll get a case um, like obelisks. You see quite a few obelisks and you'll see, uh, a, once in a while, you'll see a tiny little obelisk. And I hesitate to say it almost looks cute at first because, you know, because it's so strange to see it's such so small and compact. But then you realize you, you sort of stop smiling when you realize that it's for a young child. So um, these miniature versions of stones often indicate that, that it's for a child. In this case, I wanted to show you, so um, close up here. So weeping willows, willows, um, very common in old cemeteries in the 19th century. And I'm sure, again, I probably don't have to explain to most, if not all of you, the symbolism, even the, the fact that they're called often weeping willows. Um, they tend to sort of symbolize where they mostly symbolize mourning. And in this case, it's, it's hard to tell because this stone is old and, and it, here it had some various stuff on it. it looks like lichens or mold or something, but um, this is actually a lamb, a, a lamb that's sleeping lying down here. So the head's here, there's a leg here, and then the body's here. So <clears throat> lambs you see quite a lot in 19th century cemeteries. They symbolize innocence. Um, you can also see lambs, and I've seen them in Jewish cemeteries as well, one of the few shared um, iconographies in, in some of the cemeteries in Canada. But um, So the lamb symbolizes innocence. In the Christian case, also symbolizes Jesus, Lamb of God. And then you can always find the, the biblical passages to support this, like, suffer the little children to come unto me and the various other things. Um, and then obviously Jesus as the Lamb of God. So here you have this willow sort of draped over or mourning over the lamb so the symbolism is is quite obvious but the sleeping lamb the, the lambs were also um, when you go a little deeper in terms of the theology um, innocence and sadness here as well but 
when you get into some of the the, the mentalities, um, children, young children especially, were seen to be pure and without sin because of the fact that they hadn't lived longer and had the ability or had the time to start doing bad things. So, um, <clears throat> so in a lot of cases, there's sort of a dual component to it, but mostly the symbolism is mourning. So if you see lambs, you, you can 99% of the time tell yourself that it's a child. I have seen it and you do see it for young adults, sometimes teenagers, and I have even seen it on adult stones, but in the vast majority of cases, it's for, for young children. This next one I wanted to show you just because it's so, it's so neat and so unique. Um, it's, it's actually one you could, you could miss depending on how you walk the cemetery, but I saw it the first time I was there, um, just because of, it really stood out to me. Um, it's, this is actually made of cast iron, which is very rare. Um, the only other cast iron one I know of in Niagara is, um, at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Cemetery in Niagara on the lake. And there might be one other one, my memory is failing me, but they're, they're quite rare, um, to the point that nobody's actually sure we think people think from the literature that um that the epitaph or sorry the, i guess you'd call it the epitaph though it's not a stone the um the information the biographical information might have been painted on it somewhere likely was so that the person could be identified but over time it fades away like the paint on the old gothic cathedrals in europe and so eventually you're left with just the cast iron thistle um, but it's quite a neat neat little thing just because it is so unique and and when you look at it you can see the little little pricklies on it little thorns on it and then you can see here the top the flower here so just a neat little a neat little a neat little um marker and to the left of it it's actually there's a stone for a family called the lambert family so i'm still trying to figure out um if it might be for one of the members of the lambert family but again it's really hard to know without um without having any information on it. But it's, it's a neat little marker just because it is so unique. So I encourage you if you are in the area and you walk Victoria Lawn to try and find it. The next one, this is also, this is actually nearby the one I just showed you. Another sort of mystery in the sense that um, because, because of the relatively early death of this man, David Edwards uh, at just 20, um, before provincial death records were kept in Ontario. Hard to find information about a lot of people before 1869 when those records started. And even then, they were very spotty for several years afterwards. Um, but in this case, a beautiful, beautiful stone. This is that there's quite a lot, you can see Gothic tracery here. So you see some symbols that are, that you also see um, on, on like various aspects of Gothic buildings. Um, and then actually here in the center, this I think is the eye of Providence, which is a Masonic symbol. So you can see the eye here and the rays coming out from it. So it may indicate that David was a Mason. And then at the bottom of it, <clears throat> um, the epitaph reads in the midst of life, we are, or sorry, in the center, it reads in the midst of life, we are in death. Um, going back to my little conversation about epitaphs this is an another oftentimes the epitaphs can be a clue to to what they're trying to convey or to the the um, circumstances of the person's death so oftentimes you'll see this phrase which is quite old itself um, in relation to you'll see it on memorials for people who died young and so and you even still hear people use this phrase occasionally now and then 
often to um, indicate sort of a reminder, they call a memento mori, a remember that you must die, remember death idea, that um, it can come at any time. And particularly in the 19th century, when people had so many accidents, could die of so many diseases, etc., you can understand why these kinds of things would have um, quite a visceral meaning to people. Also, I found this one on as an aside, I found it interesting. I've seen this several times where crab apples and various other things fall perfectly or, or are brought there by an animal and left there. So anyway, it's an aside, but <clears throat> I imagine one or two people were distracted by it like me. So uh, anyway, another just a beautiful stone, quite a little nice piece of art. Again, unfortunately, it's old and tends to be quite dirty, but you can still see quite a lot going on here in terms of the different scripts and, the, you know, relief lettering here and then incise lettering here, relief lettering here. And then you can imagine the skill that would have been involved to carve something like this. So another this gives you an indication. You can imagine stone was put here probably around the time that David died within several years, I would imagine. And so you can imagine somebody in the Victorian era walking through the cemetery and, you know, somebody that maybe didn't have access to or, or you know, didn't have easy access to seeing art like this um, would, would, would definitely stop and appreciate it because it is beautiful art even to us today. <clears throat> this next stone I, I wanted to include just because it's an interesting example um, of some of the mysteries you encounter. And, and again, dare I say fun in related to, to a subject as serious as death, but some of the, the interesting research and the, the mysteries that you come across that cause you to ask questions and start to, to dig a little bit deeper, pardon the pun. Um, I, I actually just noticed this the last time. So it's kind of goes against what I said about my first eyes on, on the cemetery, but um, I wanted to include it because it was I had never noticed it in all the other times I had walked. And what's interesting about it, I had noticed it. So it's Elizabeth is at the top and I, I hope you forgive me. I didn't intend to cut her off, um, but I just, the stone was put likely for her um, after she died in 1869. But what caught my eye this time was the fact that in very faint lettering here. So the name is Richard Hodgins, uh, died in 1854, aged 55 years. And in very faint, you can see who died and was buried at sea. <clears throat> so um, I'm trying to do more research into Richard. Again, it's hard this year. A lot of this research is very hard with COVID-19 because your usual resources are not necessarily available and you're sort of just doing online stuff for the most part. Um, but an intriguing mystery it makes you wonder, you know, when I started trying to play around with, you know, maybe shipwrecks or things like that, but it doesn't sound like it was a shipwreck. It sounds like he died on board a ship and was buried at sea. So I'm trying to find out more. And, and um, I wish I had more to tell you, but I just wanted to include it because I, I thought it was a great example of how you walk around these places many times. And um, you notice something new each time, especially in a, in a cemetery as big as Victoria Lawn, where you can walk it all the time and see something new every time. And I've talked to the groundskeepers before the maintenance staff and um, numerous, numerous ones have told me that they've worked there for a long time and they still notice new ones all the time when they're doing their work. So um, just an interesting mystery you come across and you come across quite a few of these in these large old cemeteries. <clears throat> so this is for a, a, a inf infant, Mar Gertrude Martha Smith. So sadly it's been sort of pushed off its base a little bit here, probably being hit by something I would imagine or moved unfortunately maybe vandalism I'm not sure but likely being hit by a mower or something but over time it's been pushed off here but still a beautiful stone um, 
and I, I haven't been able to find a death record for Gertrude, so I don't, I don't know what caused her death. But again, at one year old at that time, you can imagine any number of things. But I wanted to show it to you because it's another great example of some of the symbols you see. So getting close up here. <clears throat> so you can see it's on some, some rocks here, some stones. And then you can, it's almost like a cairn kind of deal. And then you have a scroll coming across the front here. So scrolls often symbolize life, but uh, they also were um, artistic, great artistic devices for monument makers because, of course, they convey this idea of, of the deceased being written, on, you know, like a life being written on paper or whatever. And that has biblical, um, also has biblical um, reference as well. But <clears throat> this one's interesting because this is an example. You'll see hands on stones, the old stones quite a bit. And the most common one are the two hands clasping each other, which often is for a husband and wife. And you'll see an epitaph above that just says farewell or see you in heaven, something along those lines. And in those cases, it's relatively easy to, to surmise what, what the message is, husband and wife parting, hoping to meet again in heaven. <clears throat> but sometimes you'll come across a hand coming down. So <clears throat> and I'm going to show you another one after. But in this case, you can see there's a, you can see there's a hand here. And there's a finger. So this is the finger here hand here. So these are lily of the valley here. And then this looks like some kind of lily. It's hard to tell when it's stylized like this and very small and, and with just the white color. But this is definitely a lily of the valley. And this is so the, the hand coming down is is represent represents the hand of God. So and this comes from other tradition of not um, that it in ancient times that it was considered a faux pas to um, to portray an image of God. This, of course, was changed later on and not seen as a, as a big deal at all, hence the Sistine Chapel. Um, but in, in this case, it sort of follows this tradition. And for monument makers, it was um, easier for them to convey the sim a symbol or, or a message like this. So when the hand is coming downwards, it, it represents the hand of God. And <clears throat> in the case where you see the hand of God coming down and either pointing a finger or as in the next example, I'll show you pulling on something. It's um, invariably, in my experience, for somebody who died young or somebody who died accidentally, um, unexpectedly, however you want to term it. So um, there are many examples I've come across like this in the Niagara region. And every time it's for somebody either who died quite young, as in this case, an infant, or um, I've seen it for workplace accidents. There's, there's a young man at St. Mark's Niagara-on-the-Lake that died um, in, in a railway accident and it's on his and I've seen it many many other places actually across Ontario and it's it's seen in the U.S. as well. So in this case <clears throat> the symbolism is the hand of God coming down and basically taking the life or, or it's an indication that God has taken the person. Um, and then the symbolism of lilies symbolize numerous things but usually the idea is something about purity and resurrection because of Easter lilies and the name Easter Jesus. And then lily of the valley also is usually interpreted as a symbol of renewal or resurrection because it's an early blooming flower in the spring. So the, so the symbolism here is both, as in a lot of cases, both sort of sadness and mourning, but also hope in a resurrection and hope that the deceased soul is going elsewhere. <clears throat> So in the next example, this is another example of it. And I wanted to show you this one. So this stone is sadly so eroded to the point where you can't even read the inscription anymore. That's why I chose just to 
focus on the on the symbol at the top on the motif at the top <clears throat> but um here again you have the hand of gauze you have this roundel here sort of framing it then you have a you can see the cuff and then you can see the hand here see the fingers now very very hard to see because of the age of the stone the erosion of it and it's it's dirty um, but it's actually a chain and this is the hand of god pulling up a broken chain and so the one that i referenced at saint mark's a few minutes ago um, for the young man who died in a railway accident same same exact same motif uh, the hand of god coming down pulling a broken chain so in my experience and i i always say in my experience because um, old cemeteries are interesting that 99 times out of 100 you'll be correct in your assumption and then the one time somebody chose to use it in a different way and you realize oh you can't always generalize but in my experience as i said invariably this is for somebody who died young or unexpectedly or quickly from a disease like within a week or a month something very quick so without even seeing the inscription um i will i can usually surmise or you can usually surmise that um with this used here that this person died young or you know either by an accident or or a short illness of some kind so um, just an example, another example of how you can use these symbols, these motifs as a way to, to, to get clues about the person. And, and also they're sort of just these mysterious things that are interesting to, um, the more you see them, um, the more you can find patterns and you'll see these patterns across different areas. And then when you do see the, the occasional exception, it, it causes you to ask further questions. So regardless, it's always a, a learning experience one way or the other. <clears throat> this is... Another one, um, another symbol I wanted to talk about. Um, so this is for a, sorry, I'm just flipping my page here. Um, so this is for a young man, or sorry, not young man, or a slightly older man by their day standards, Felix Goodwin. So Felix was a carpenter. Um, he died at 59 from heart disease in 1880. <clears throat> so um, first off, it has this beautiful sort of shield or crest or whatever you want to call it here for the inscription. You'll occasionally see these. And so sort of used as a artistic device, framing device for the inscription here. And, um, you know, I mean, if you're used to, or if you have seen, you know, heraldic crests and things like that, the sort of use of these becomes a little obvious, usually to symbolize family and things. But in this case, it seems that monument makers wanted to use them as um, sort of framing devices. And uh, they're, they're just nice to look at. But um, of particular interest here is this, which is an anchor. <clears throat> so, going back to the recumbent cross at the beginning and saying that oftentimes the first few times you visit old cemeteries you you make mistakes about what these things might mean or you, you even today there are still misconceptions a lot of things like the internet always is it's a repository of great information sometimes and poor information others um, so the anchor in most cases does not mean that the deceased was a sailor <clears throat> it actually is a reference to hope <clears throat> sorry excuse me i just need water here So it is, uh, the anchor is often a symbol of hope, most of the time a symbol of hope and faith. <clears throat> um, so the hope in an afterlife. And, um, in, and so this um, is actually directly referenced in the New Testament, and it's in the epistle to the Hebrews. And so it's Hebrews 6, 18 to 20. And I'm just going to quote it so you can see what I mean here. But it says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, 
and which entereth into that within the veil. So I'm doing the old school King James version of the Bible with the old school language. <clears throat> but um, you, I'm sure you heard the word hope twice there. And, um, and then the anchor of the soul. So, so here you have what the symbolism actually is. Um, this, this idea that faith and hope, <clears throat> um, that again, this idea that um, the deceased is gone, but they have gone into the veil, so to speak, in, in hope and in faith that this is not the end for them. <clears throat> so just briefly, I'm almost at the end here. Um, just briefly, <clears throat> another example, and this one um, it was really challenging and um, to see, I should say, challenging to see. But so this is actually an anchor here. This is the bottom of the anchor here. And then the top is very eroded, but it's here. And you will occasionally see this on old stones as well. And the book, 99% of the time, means the Bible. And again, the anchor here, in this case, is is like conveying the message that um, it's a statement of piety or a statement of faith. So the idea of the book, i.e. the Bible, is my anchor, my hope, my faith, etc. <clears throat> so and you will occasionally, I've seen it with a heart as well, um, and a sacred heart. Uh, um, but oftentimes, I've seen it with this book here and, and with the anchor sort of behind it sort of grabbing it. So again, uh, once you sort of know the, the meaning behind it, you can surmise it each time you see it. <clears throat> um, this is another another one that caught my eye. I remember the first time I, I walked this cemetery. And uh, here, this one, it's actually for it's a family monument. There are several people, but I just chose to focus on hers because it was the first side I saw. Um, she died. This is Janet. She died at just 25 um, of, of also the death record says consumption, but that was often, um, it meant a lot of things, but oftentimes tuberculosis. So she died of tuberculosis in 1888. So yet another example, um, yet again, proving the point or hammering home the point that tuberculosis killed many, many people. Um, <clears throat> but the top of the stone is interesting. Um, so again, a close up here. So here you have this sort of drapery or veil they call it so drapery or veil, um, or sometimes even a pall. I've heard it called a pall, though it looks more like drapery with the tassels here in the fringe. Um, <clears throat> but covering the top here, and you see these two books. So um, oftentimes you'll see in some of the big older cemeteries, you'll see the two books or a book. The book almost always again means the Bible. Um, and this is hammered home by many times that I've seen that it actually says scriptures on the side or literally Holy Bible. So no guesswork needed there. Um, but in this case, you have two books. So you look at it at first and you think, hmm, what does that mean? Two books did the deceased like to read? Well, perhaps. Um, but in this case, you have a larger book and a smaller book. And again, putting yourself in the context of the 19th century when faith and religion were such a huge part of people's lives, at least publicly they professed it. Um, you think of what two books could they be talking about? Well, Old Testament here, which is larger, New Testament here, which is smaller. And so again, this, this veil, and then the veils often symbolize um, or have been interpreted as the veil between life and death. It's also been interpreted as um, the old tradition of putting a pall over the coffin or casket. And this is, of course, again, um, a lot of people don't realize this is where we get the term to cast a pall over something. So sort of cast darkness or sadness or bad, bad things over something. So, but in this case, 
it, it likely means the veil between life and death. And then again, going back to that biblical passage I quoted just now about entering into the veil. So again, a statement likely of faith here. So entering into the veil in faith or something along those lines. So again, a, a, a great example of how you can sort of do some educated guessing based on what you see on the monument itself. And I know it sounds um, repetitive because so many of these things have to do with faith, um, but those were the times. So the last one I wanted to point out um, is a unique monument in this cemetery. Um, I've only seen one that I can recall. Um, and these were, they're, they're, it's actually made of zinc and they were, they were advertised as what they, and manufactured it to be called white bronze, which was um, basically just to associate it with the sort of um, prestige of bronze monuments and things. Um, and, and to sort of uh, convey or to sort of ignore the fact that it wasn't stone. Um, but in, in this case, so what, what are interesting, what's interesting about these monuments is that it, they're actually hollow. So on the inside, if you actually walk up to one, and I never advise people go and start playing around with monuments, I have a very strict don't touch policy, even if I am very curious and want to, or if I want to fix something, the only thing I will do is fix things at the bottom if a flag is fallen over, etc. But I try not to touch the monuments just because unless it's for a family member, it's not really in my place to do so. But if you actually just tap very lightly with your finger, you can hear a ringing sound that indicates it's hollow. So these were manufactured, the, the white bronze company was actually out of um, Connecticut, Bridgeport, I think, if I remember correctly, um, but they had a subsidiary factory in St. Thomas, Ontario. And so oftentimes, this one actually doesn't happen, but oftentimes around the base, you'll see it actually says white bronze company, St. Thomas ONT, and all of the monuments that were of the of this type that were made in Canada um, came at least the Canadian examples come from that factory. So, um, and then here you can see 1887. This is for the Thiel family. Um, and so these panels, what would happen is they were precast at the factory. So you had an actual catalog that you would select the the style you wanted from, and then they also you could further narrow it down. Um, to certain symbols you wanted and things like that. Here you have this sort of, um, I don't have a close up here, but it looks like, again, like um, swag, a, a swag of some kind. Um, but anyway, then, so you could further narrow down, say, oh, I want an angel here, or I want a sheaf of wheat or whatever, and then even choose the type. So in this case, they chose an obelisk. So it was precast at the factory. And then for the first person, usually that the monument was for, they would then have a panel sent, made and sent out. So this is, a, this is actually a zinc panel here. This other one is actually stone, which indicates that it was made later um, after the company was, went belly up in the, I think it was around just after the first world war in Canada. Um, but you'll see these stone examples sometimes that were done sort of by a DIYer to fit in there. Um, to, so, you know, just to, for the family members that passed away afterwards, or if they couldn't afford it, or if the, agent. These were actually sold by local agents. So um, if maybe there wasn't an agent in the area anymore and the person couldn't get it, they would sometimes put these little stone ones in to fit in there. Um, but the panels are actually have bolts on them. You can see there's one here and then one here, one here, and then there's a missing one here. And it's sad when you see them without these, but in, in some cases I've seen ones with it where the panels have either been removed or have fallen out. You can actually look right in it and see inside and see that it's hollow. It's not hugely exciting. You just see the other side of the bolts and then, um, you know, 
sometimes garbage, unfortunately, from people throwing garbage in there or perhaps being blown in over time. Um, but they're very interesting and unique because from far away, the first time you see one, people often mistake them for stone, but they, over time, they, they, they sort of have this bluish gray color. And once you start to see a few, you can walk into any old cemetery and spot them right away, even sometimes from the road, because the color stands out so much compared to the stone. You can look behind it compared to these other colors, it stands out very well. So um, I'll challenge you if you're in the area to try and find this one. I believe if I remember correctly, it's the only one or it is the only one I can remember seeing. Some cemeteries will have three or four, but they're an interesting little unique um, example. They didn't survive um, the test of time because largely because people saw them as sort of cheap imitations. So, um, you know, white marble particularly was seen as the prestigious stone, the most expensive stone to have. So those were the ones that that people wanting to demonstrate social standing or wealth or whatever posturing, whatever you want to call it. Um, those were the ones that they often chose. So these these fell out of favor and didn't tend to be hugely popular at any cemetery that we know of. As someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've never seen more than several in one cemetery. So um, just an, a neat little throwback to a time when somebody tried to do things a little differently. And what makes these neat is that this one is actually sort of settled into the ground and sort of caving in down here, but they hold up very, very well to the elements compared to stone because of the fact that the zinc develops this sort of coating um, and then it, it protects them from the elements. So if you actually look at these panels, like this one that's made of the zinc, um, you can read it clear as day as if it was manufactured yesterday. And other than the fact that this one's a little dirty, um, if this was cleaned up, it would almost look brand new, aside from the fact that the stone sticks out color. So anyway, that's it for today. Um, so before we go on to questions, thank you very much for watching. Um, thank you, Adrian, particularly. I know we did a lot of back and forth with the emails and things. And so I appreciate you uh, be, being patient with me on the back and forth. And uh, thanks for asking. Thanks to the museum. And um, I encourage if, if you're not sticking around for questions, um, I encourage um, I will be providing here my information. Um, so if, if you want to get in touch with me, if you're not sticking around for questions, I can be contacted through the email, uh, Gmail. I also have a website. I'm very active on Twitter daily. Instagram, not quite as much. Um, I tend to post every few days and it's usually just a repeat of the Twitter content, um, but I am on there occasionally. And then I actually have started doing some YouTube videos. I don't have very many yet. I'm trying to get better and professionalize them a little more, but but I'm um, getting started on it. So if you go there and have a look and like it, please subscribe. And um, that's it. So thanks very much. Hi, it's Adrian again. We really hope you enjoyed the lecture. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us via our social media channels or at museum at stcatherines.ca. More lectures are headed your way this winter, so don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find us under St. Catherine's Museum. For details and to register for the series, please visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Next time on VMLS via podcast, Where They Walk, the making of the annual guided spirit walks. 
The Virtual Museum Lecture Series is presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Wellington House Centre.